Certified Angus Beef. It's a brand that's grown exponentially since its beginning in 1978. What has changed over the years and why? Rumors the non-Angus cattle sell under the brand and how the CAB brand has impacted the beef industry. Paul Dykstra with Certified Angus Beef joins us on this edition of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills, your host, and thank you for joining us on our program. We do appreciate you listening. And if you're listening via your podcast provider, thank you for downloading as we do drop a new episode every Wednesday of each week. Or if you're listening on satellite radio, we are here every Saturday, 12 noon Eastern, right here on Rural Radio Channel 147, Sirius XM. Anyway, as you heard in the opening, our program today is on certified Angus beef. And love it, like it, don't care, or not amused by the program. I think that you're going to want to listen because you may not run Angus-influenced cattle, or you might. What we're going to be talking about on the program, though, has impacted the beef business, and it is the beef business that we as ranchers are in. And Paul Dykstra with Certified Angus Beef will be joining me later. Also, meteorologist Don Day will be back with us in our final segment to talk weather. And in just a moment, we'll hear from the captain, Tim O'Byrne, with Tim's Two Cents. And speaking of the captain, he and the whole team from Working Ranch Magazine are busy putting together the next issue. I have not read it yet, but I know there is going to be an article in there on sagebrush that I am really interested in reading. And for me, (laughs) I'll tell you, it's a plant that really consumes a lot of valuable acres, yet I do know that it has some value. Now, I'll have to admit, sometimes I have to really think long and hard about (laughs) what that value is. But anyways, I I am looking forward to that article among the many others that will be in there. Very useful to those of us in the ranching business. Now, if you don't have a subscription to Working Ranch Magazine, you can get set up by going to the website at workingranchmag.com or just get a hold of me. I can get you pointed in the right direction as well. The number to get a hold of me, call or text, is 307-363-COWS or email me at justin.workingranch at gmail.com. Right now, thank you to our sponsors for today's program of the Working Ranch Radio Show, the American Simmental Association. And there's a lot of tradition in the cattle industry, but at the end of the day, we still do have to be profitable, which is why the American Simmental Association believes that their primary purpose for existence is genetic evaluation and providing genetic awareness tools that help producers make decisions to move their operations forward from maternal traits to terminal traits the genetic merit of simmental genetics has provided increased profitability to the rancher sim genetics profit through science find out more at simmental.org other sponsors include the american hereford association come home to hereford performance beef easy to use cattle management software the north american limousine foundation limousine cattle deliver to your bottom line and the working ranch expo we've talked about it quite extensively here in our shows coming up december 8th 9th and 10th in las vegas at the las vegas convention center it's new this is something new that the working ranch magazine 
Magazine is putting on. Uh, so join us for this three-day trade show event that's going to be during the Wrangler National Finals. If you'd like to exhibit, there's still some good booth spaces available or you're interested in attending. You can find out more at WorkingRanchExpo.com. And our final sponsor is Beefmaster. Nothing beats a Beefmaster. Right now, we're going to check in with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for Tim's Two Cents. Hey, everybody. Justin, you remember that Hank Williams Jr. song? I had a good friend up in New York City. Well, what if we had a friend in New York City and he emailed you and said, Hey, I'm reading in the local newspaper that uh, cows are responsible for like more uh, greenhouse gas emissions than the transportation sector. Would you have a graphic to be able to send him and say, actually, that's not true. We have a really good graphic here that shows that, you know, it's like a truck and that's 28% and electricity uh, manufacturing, that's 28%. And we've got industry is 22%. And actually livestock is 9% of greenhouse emissions. So that's a little bit more balanced graphic. And we have the sources that we've cited. It's right on the graphic. Do you have that graphic, Justin? Because I sure as heck don't. I had to go hunt for it. I found one here. I'm going to show you folks here and uh, down the road uh, a good graphic that explains it. But the point is, is that we should have that material out there. I went on the NCBA website this morning and I clicked on uh, to try to get some idea of, you know, what kind of uh, learning materials that they had, the link was broken. I couldn't even get to the cattle learning materials. So I called them up and I said, hey, we need to fix this. And they're like, yeah, we should fix that. And and uh, and, and they're going to get after it. But we're just, we're unprepared for this, folks. We're slowly getting, it's just like a weed, just like napweed coming in. And, and it's, just, it's taken over really slow. And I'll tell you what, it's better to get the misinformation or that napweed. It's better to get it now when there's not a lot of it, then to let it overtake the outfit. I think we need to get our act together and have a graphic that we can all share everywhere out there. And it should be right there on our desktop. This is Tim's Two Cents. Catch you guys later. Folks, let me tell you, what the captain just said is so critical. It's critical that we as an industry step up together and tell our story. And let me tell you, This is me. I am someone not reactionary by nature saying this. We are past the point of being reactionary about the blatant falsehoods that are being told about our industry and its effect on the environment. Now, I know there's a lot of issues that bring disagreement within our industry. Do not let those get in the way of us uniting and developing our story, our information piece, like the captain said, of our science-based facts about what our industry does to not only benefit the environment, but feed people through a healthy diet. A quote that come to me as I heard the captain talking was one that Kevin Costner said in, a, in one of his movies. It was this, when a defining moment comes along, you define the moment or the moment defines you. And folks, the war on our cattle industry being waged in the name of saving our planet is a defining moment for all of us. We'll be back with more on the Working Ranch Radio Show. 
Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus Sired Calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus Sired Steer Calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sire groups with at least 50 lots represented on Superior Livestock's 2020 summer sales. The proof's right there. For low-risk, high-potential calves with earning potential, be confident that Sim Genetics will give you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show here on Rural Radio Channel 147 Sirius XM. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And before we jump into our interview for today, I want to start with a little bit of a foundation. Back in the 1800s, we saw the rise of the Great Texas Cattle Drives taking place in an effort to get cattle to the railhead towns in Kansas. In fact, between the Civil War and about 1873, they figure that on the Chisholm Trail alone, there was over 1.5 million head of cattle that passed over that trail. And that connected, of course, Texas to the Kansas towns like Abilene, Wichita, and Ellsworth. But the demand for beef was growing and the consumer really wasn't too picky or choosy. And they really didn't have a lot of options either as there really weren't a lot of other breeds as people were just starting to settle and the big ranches were just starting to build their vast herds. So today, a lot has changed in the ranching industry. Our ability to get cattle to the market isn't really that difficult, or we just sell them off the ranch. Additionally, the Texas Longhorn that once populated the West has pretty much been replaced by predominantly English breed cattle, and the consumer, well, I guess that's where things may start to get a little bit interesting compared to the 1800s. Now, while the industry is currently seeing very high demand for beef, there are other factors that influence our potential customer. Things like other options in the meat case or the cost of our product, a good experience with our product, or how about issues being politicized under the name of science to sway consumers away from beef, and the list goes on. But with all of that said, well, it doesn't mean that the beef industry has not responded. In fact, today... There are many things in play that are targeted to maintain and increase beef demand to the consumer. Programmed cattle is a term that many of us are aware of, but the origination of selling programmed cattle reaches back into the year of 1978 when we see one of the first recognized programs getting started. Now, this program was born out of the necessity to revive a declining breed by creating the demand for a product that accentuated that breed's meat qualities. And on October 18, 1978, the first pound of certified Angus beef brand was sold in Columbus, Ohio. And two weeks later, USDA canceled that program. But as you're very aware, that definitely was not the end to the certified Angus beef program. And today... It has evolved into the biggest branded beef program in the industry. So today, we're going to learn a little bit more of the history of the Certified Angus Beef Program, or CAB as I'll refer to it, plus address topics like can other breeds make it into the program and its impact on the industry and more. So joining me is Paul Dykstra, Assistant Director of Supply Management and Analysis with Certified Angus Beef LLC out of Chapel, Nebraska. And Paul, thanks for joining me here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. My pleasure, Justin. Thanks for the invitation. 
Well, first of all, uh, before we get into some of the other details, just quick, give us a, a, a background history of Certified Angus Beef, how it got established. Well, it's a long history by now as we're in our 43rd year now as a brand, Justin, but um, the company was founded in 1978. And that was a period of time where uh, really three important factors, in my opinion, had come together uh, to, to create a, a niche in the marketplace or a need, if you will, uh, for the Certified Angus Beef brand to be, to, uh, to be launched. Uh, the first of those uh, was an unfortunate one for Angus breeders in the fact that the Angus breed was kind of waning in terms of popularity there in the 70s. Uh, for those folks that can remember that period of time, that was uh, when uh, a lot of those continental breeds, European continental cattle were being introduced to the United States and were uh, being being taken up quite well in the production sector and were quite popular. Uh, at the same time, the health community in the U.S. was really on fire adopting an idea of uh, the war on fat. That was the terminology that we used in the mm-hmm. late 70s and in the 80s. Uh, when uh, in that period, the idea was, uh, was popularly accepted in the fact that uh, fat was, was bad for human health and consumption of animal fats uh, caused high cholesterol and heart disease and all these things. And that bad science, uh, which a lot of it's been disproven, um, really kind of uh, put the down arrow on, on cattle that had the ability to, uh, to have exceptional marbling in their, in their meat as well. And then finally, that was also a time when uh, the USDA uh, combined the good and choice grades in the quality grade system for carcasses and essentially uh, widened up that choice grade to uh, make it a little bit confusing. From, from top to bottom, there's quite a range in marbling uh, within the choice grade that was new um, in that period of time. So it was it was an opportune time to uh, capitalize on the butcher's breed, which was the Angus breed, and the fact that the cattle do have a propensity to, to marble quite well, amongst many other uh, very highly sought-after production traits. But uh, the butcher's breed uh, was, was identified to... Uh, to begin the brand, and and ten carcass specifications were uh, not dreamt up, but assigned to this brand based on good science. And Dr. Bob Van Stavern at the, the Ohio State University uh, was was the author of those specs. So the first branded program uh, in existence, and with ten solid carcass specifications that up to uh, to this date have only needed a modest amount of uh, modifications. As uh, as we've kind of seen the evolution of the beef business up through today, mm-hmm. you mentioned the ten specifications that were developed to provide a frame for the Certified Angus Beef Program. So let's go into more detail of what they are and their purpose. Yeah, well, the first one is the live animal requirement, um, and it it was probably a little easier to understand in 1978 than today. But a lot of things have happened in that time span, but. The fact that the cattle needed to be initially uh, 51% uh, black in hide color was that was the original live animal spec, mm-hmm. and of course in 1978 that was absolutely the definition of an Angus animal or an Angus uh, sired animal for sure, and we could sure talk about how that's uh, not so much the case today. But that particular standard has evolved uh, in the last couple of years. We've changed the terminology just a bit. 
in the fact that the cattle need to be predominantly black hided over the uh, main portion of their body. So what that really means in cattlemen's terms is from the shoulder back and from the flanks up, that animal needs to be solid black with uh, no color extending over the midline of the back. Uh, the only exception to that is the switch of the tail can be a different color than black. So that's the live animal standard that today identifies an Angus program eligible uh, animal. But that's kind of the low bar uh, of entry. More, most importantly are those 10 carcass standards uh, that bring about the eating qualities that, uh, that we, we know consumers have come to identify the brand with. The first of those and far and away the most important is that marbling standard where the cattle need to, each carcass has to be in the upper two thirds of the choice quality grade, that's modest, zero or higher marbling on up through prime. And about 90% plus of the cattle that uh, are eligible for our brand based on hide color, but that are unsuccessful in making the brand standards actually fail at that number one uh, marbling standard. So it's very, very important. Mm -hmm. uh, second of all, that marbling needs to be uh, medium or fine texture, just so it's dispersed nicely throughout the ribeye and other cuts as well. Uh, a maturity animals are the only cattle accepted. So today that means animals that are 30 months and younger. Since we've uh, evolved to this um, dentition standard that the USDA uh, has has gone to, we've um, we've fixed the maturity scenario as carcasses are evaluated, and we're truly seeing you know, a true set of, of young cattle accepted into our brand and, and also not being discounted at the pack or for those B maturities for, for other cattle that uh, outside of our brand as well. So A maturity is 30 months and younger for all practical purposes today. Fourth, uh, that uh, ribeye area standard requires carcasses be from 10 to 16 square inches uh, for the brand in order to uh, create a consistent sized product on the plate for the consumer. Number five, along those same lines, carcass weight, although it's had to evolve as cattle have uh, have gotten larger and we've fed them to heavier weights, today's maximum carcass weight for our program is 1,050 pounds. Next in line, uh, the back fat thickness requirement of one inch or less. And Justin, I'm always sure to tell people that that's not the target, that's the maximum. Mm -hmm. uh, one inch back fat's pretty thick. Uh, we like to see them closer to six tenths in my mind from an optimal carcass standpoint, but one inch is the max. Now moving on down through these last ones, uh, they're, they're, they're less um, uh, apparent in most carcasses, but they do happen infrequently. So superior muscling uh, to limit those light muscle cattle is also a standard. Mm -hmm. uh, the eighth one would be practically free of capillary rupture. And other, other terminology would describe those as carcasses with blood spot in the ribeye as that USDA grader is evaluating them on the grade stand. Those uh, occur very, very infrequently. Similarly to dart cutters, I think most of us that are uh, students of the beef business understand what those are and how they come to be. Uh, those happen right around 1% of the time. And we sure don't want those uh, with our brand label on them. So those are excluded. And finally, um, we exclude carcasses that have more than two inches of uh, hump on the crest of the carcass uh, to limit the Brahmin influence. And that's simply due to a variation in tenderness that, uh, that we've scientifically observed uh, with those highly Brahmin influenced uh, carcasses. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's take a break right here because when we return, we're going to address the topic of non-Angus cattle being sold in the Certified Angus Program. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. Shh, hear that? It's a quiet, easy-handling Hereford cow. That's right, no broken fences, no busted gates, no injured people. Herefords lead the way in the silent traits and fertility. Studies show they increase profitability by more than $51 per cow per year at the same time. That's real money and real results. Isn't it time for you to come home to Hereford? Learn more at Hereford.org. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show here on Real Radio Channel 147, Sirius XM. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And today my guest is Paul Dykstra with Certified Angus Beef, LLC. And Paul, I want to address now the issue of non-Angus cattle selling into the CAB program because I think many of us have heard those stories about someone selling cattle that are not Angus and that animal making it into the Certified Angus Beef program. So is that something that could happen? Oh, absolutely. It happens every day for sure. Uh, the brand's intention was to capitalize on the advantages of, of the Angus breed and, and never was it to, uh, to strictly focus on purebred Angus genetics. The mission statement of the company is to drive demand uh, for registered Angus seed stock. That doesn't mean to only include registered Angus cattle in the branded meat product. So, uh, yes, I think it's fairly well evident that uh, a lot of the commercial cattle walking pastures today are not purebred anything. But we do know that a whole bunch of them are, are Angus influenced to, uh, to one degree or another, and we're capitalizing on the carcass traits and characteristics of those cattle. Now, while you mentioned that there were some non-Angus cattle that could potentially make it through into the program, when you listed out the 10 specifications, to me, some of those first ones really dialed down on specific characteristics that are key attributes to Angus cattle, and which in turn would provide a screen for those cattle that are highly non-Angus-based cattle, of course. But the purpose really in this was to create a consistent product. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, the marbling aspect is uh, is something that really, you know, in my professional career, has has really come into light and and become such a key point for consumers wanting to come back not only to our brand but to beef. Uh, when we've got enough marbling in there that 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 steak or or uh, that roast has some tenderness, some juiciness, some flavor to it. Boy, it's really satisfying, and, and we know how important that is to our brand. And the taste panel results speak for themselves, uh, not, not work that we've done, but university taste panel data very clearly uh, outlines how consumer satisfaction increases greatly as we move up the quality grade scale. And, of course, that moves right into the certified Angus beef brand and that upper two-thirds of choice and prime. Uh, the chances of them having a bad experience are virtually eliminated as we get towards uh, the top end of the quality grade scale. So marbling is so very important uh, and folks really key in on that. Mm -hmm. There have been a few modifications made to the program over the years, Paul. And when you bring up the topic or just use the line, modifications have been made, it might lead some to believe that you've done this to fit more beef into the program or were the modifications made to still encompass 
what we see the Angus breed as today? Well, I think one of the key modifications, Justin, in my mind, as I look back on history, and I think it was 2007, I shouldn't even quote the date, I'll be wrong, but uh, we used to have um, standards where yield grade four and five carcasses were excluded. And as this business has evolved, we have seen that packers have been more willing to accept a percentage of cattle that fall particularly into the yield grade four category, not so much fives. I don't think anybody wants a yield grade five, but as we've pursued as an industry, and I think appropriately, we've pursued more marbling in a product that's more satisfactory to our consumer. We've also had to um, accept the fact that we may have to trim some of this external fat off of these carcasses uh, when we feed cattle you know, longer days in the feed yard and to heavier outweighs. Mm-hmm. And packers have been sending the signal uh, financially back through their grids where the yield grade four pre or discounts, I should say, are not as severe today as they used to be. And I'm not suggesting anyone should pursue yield grade fours to any high degree, but those discounts have become smaller. And the, uh, the carrot on the other side would be, of course, the choice select spread certified Angus beef brand premiums and, and prime premiums all above all above uh, the market base. So what happened at that period is we, as a company, evaluated the fact that there were a lot of really high quality carcasses that were being excluded from our brand, a lost opportunity uh, to sell more volume of product, not only for us, but for every stakeholder in the chain, because they were falling into that yield grade four category. So what happened was, essentially removing that yield grade four requirement, but replacing it with that ribeye back fat thickness. uh, And of course the carcass weight, those are all components of the yield grade formula anyway. So it's essentially getting down to the more detailed measures rather than uh, just kind of wiping those carcasses off, off of the scene. And it's been, it's proven to have been the right decision for sure, because otherwise uh, you know, we'd be in trouble from a supply standpoint, losing out on those carcasses mm-hmm. today. We're going to take a break here. And when we return, Paul will address the concern that I've heard expressed by producers about who sees the profits in our industry with program cattle like certified Angus beef. We'll be back with more after this on the Working Ranch Radio Show. If you could do something today that would bring you a profit tomorrow, would you do it? In the cattle business, it's about efficiency. And with limousine genetics in your herd, your profit is just one calf crop away. With limousine or Limflex cattle, it's more pounds, naturally, to sell at weaning. It's growth and feed efficiency with the added benefit of carcass merit. The other side of the profit coin with limousine genetics is the maternal efficiency, docility, and longevity of your cows and bulls. It's as simple as limousine today, profit tomorrow. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show here on Rural Radio Channel 147, Sirius XM. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and we continue now with Paul Dykstra with Certified Angus Beef. And Paul, there's a lot of programs in our cattle market right now compared to 1978 when Certified Angus Beef started. And I feel we have folks with some differing perspectives about the markets going forward and many of these programs and where they fit in. 
There are those that are optimistic because of what they see coming down the line. We've got advanced genomics and other things uh, with some of these programs. They're utilizing those tools. And then I also feel there are those that are a bit more weary of some of these new programs or tools available for a few reasons. One being that it's new and they're not completely proven yet, which not necessarily is true about CAB. But the second thing is from a cow-calf side, we do all of these things, but who's actually seeing the profits? That's a great topic and point because we do have programs today that uh, we can sure enroll in as cow-calf producers. We can manage cattle a little bit differently or even just document what we were already doing, Mm -hmm. uh, some of those production practices and whatnot that give us a chance to hopefully achieve some premiums. Um, You know, and some of those programs have proven that to be the case last few years, of course, Justin, that uh, the natural premiums have been around a very, very long time. It remains pretty robust today, particularly on the cattle that uh, have lots of other attributes about them and management and, and uh, uh, reputation and whatnot. Those cattle are getting paid for quite well. Um, non-hormone treated cattle, uh, no news there. That's definitely been a headline in the mm-hmm. last year or more, definitely more, where that's been a trend uh, that also has, has had some premium associated with it. And then we talk about branded beef, though, a little closer to, to, to mm-hmm. our wheelhouse here at CAB. Uh, you know, there's a plethora of, of brand names out there in the market that uh, the Packers have been able to put forth and are trying to capitalize on. And they can be up and down the quality grade scale with several other uh, traits of, of, of uh, you know, varying importance to the consumer. And, you know, we're proud, especially proud, at Certified Angus Beef that our brand is one of the few uh, that uh, that shows up on that feed yards uh, settlement sheet from the packer when those cattle are sold on a grid marketing program. There's a line item for the Certified Angus Beef brand premium, which uh, this week uh, is about five dollars and sixty cents per hundredweight on average across uh, each of the packers. So, um, you know, not not every brand can say that, and I don't mean that to to uh, to brag about just our program, but uh, we're sure happy to see that. I think a little bit of it, Justin, is the as a as a production sector, whether it be cow calf, stalker, or feed yard, we kind of need to bet on the come just a little bit in terms of we know that consumers have more desire to know more about their food. And I think we've been just a little bit browbeaten on the production side with that idea in the last little bit. Uh, but I think we also need to pay good attention uh, to the reality of that. And if we don't step up and make some assurances about our product uh, without necessarily knowing where the payday is, then we might get left in the dust, not only uh, against our other protein competitors in the market, but other foods. So mm-hmm. we need to be progressive in that way and uh, and do so cautiously, optimistically, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we start getting breed specific with products, for some it, it's it's going to create a little stir and and maybe the hair on their neck comes up a little bit because they're protective of maybe the breed that they have. And we have a lot of different breeds across the country that have some great attributes. Either they fit a niche market that those people are aiming at, or those cattle fit the environment that they're raised in as well. So when we look at CAB and all the other breeds. How does this work together? Is there is it working together, or, or what do you see as a CAB guy and its effect with the other breeds in the industry? 
That's an excellent discussion point. Yeah, I don't think that uh, any of us in the cattle business can claim that we're, you know, completely agnostic when it comes to cattle breed. We all have our favorites, whether it be based on our heritage or or information that we believe we have in hand that says that our our favorite breed or breed combination uh, is the best. Um, you know, when it comes to cooperation um, amongst the breeds, you know, that can be that can be a little ticklish because each of our breed associations and our registered breeders and such, you know, they all we all want to win and we want to expand our market share, yeah. and that's just uh, that's human nature and that's just good business to be competitive. Um, what I like to think about when I think about uh, certified Angus beef as a brand and its impact on the industry is, uh, you know, we're happy to be. Uh, the the first and the largest brand, and that's that's fun to talk about. But in terms of impact to the industry, uh, I think it's been um, you know uh, a history of kind of opening doors to where we've got consumers keyed into the fact that they can trust in a brand name when it comes to uh, to beef in the in the meat case. And it's not a commodity. Uh, we've we've put a premium look to it. We've put some standards to the product. And they, you know, fortunately, when they go away and eat that product, they typically want to come back and do it again, and they're willing to pay what it takes because they felt like it was, you know, worthwhile and uh, and it met their expectations. This essentially is encapsulating the trend that I think Randy Block spoke about a couple of weeks back on your program, Justin, where beef demand has improved hand over fist since say uh, the 80s and 90s, and we've only done that through collectively breeding a better set of cattle. And fortunately on the marketing side, whether it be our brand or the competitor, whether it be Angus cattle or another breed, you know, all of us have benefited through greater beef demand and that's come about in, in, in many ways. I'm just happy that we've kind of had a rising tide, you know, lifting all boats as it, uh, as it relates to beef demand. I think that's a good point. And, and it brings me to this is, do you have a dollar figure, an idea of, of just what kind of premium this program has put back into the beef industry or into the Angus-influenced industry? Well, that's really hard to get our arms around. It's been attempted before, and I won't try to outline it for you this uh, today, Justin, But uh, because a person could certainly uh, surmise that when we look at the dollars put into the pocket of Angus seed stock breeders in terms of uh, higher bull sale averages over the years, you know, that's, that's a pretty tremendous amount. How much do you attribute Mm -hmm. to the certified Angus beef brand and how much do you attribute to the functionality of those, those Angus bulls and genetics that they're uh, injecting into those commercial cow herds? And I wouldn't want to misstate that figure personally myself, but I like to look at it really black and white with, with, without my opinion included. And that is by looking at the weekly weighted market average for fed cattle. And then I look at the certified Angus beef brand premium that is paid on top of the choice uh, premium. And, you know, we're looking at for CAB carcasses, 50 bucks a head today. And there have been times we've been over $100 per head when these spreads got really wide on the carcass side of the market. And that's the, that's the way I really like to just answer the question uh, most uh, straightforward. Mm-hmm. And then we, we can talk about how those dollars funnel back to the ranch obviously that becomes a little bit more of a mixed conversation depending on which specific ranch and marketing method that we're talking about. So when we talk back to the producer, for somebody that says, you know, I've got a 
you know, majority of these of my cattle are Angus influence. I think I could maybe fit into that program or try. What, what's the process they need to do? I always say that it's about relationships, Justin, and that's the way this cattle industry really has operated for so long. It's about uh, it's about having a network of people and talking to the right folks that uh, that can help you accomplish your goals. And from a rancher's perspective, that's pretty easy to understand who your customer is. It's either a stalker operator or it's a cattle feeder. And uh, I think if, I think folks ought to spend the time to get pretty familiar with a good handful of people in their customer base. And that's not too difficult to figure out who uh, the potential players might be that are keying in on, on your breed, on the cattle that you have in, in your herd. Um, and talk to them about, Hey, what are the genetics behind my cattle? You know, how do how do I quantify that for the customer down the line? Tell them about, you know, um, the specific traits you've been breeding for and, uh, there are there are programs today, like in our case at Angus, we've got the Angus Link program that helps to uh, further quantify uh, genetic merit behind the bull battery over a number of years. That kind of information can be put in front of those those cattle feeding customers, and we know that these auction markets across the country, you know, the, typically they have order buyers on the seats, not necessarily feed yard operators in every case, Justin. So. I think it's important to get way ahead of, of sale day if that's the preferred method, and that's still today far and away the majority of the cattle sold that way. Uh, get in front of those those feeders and, and let them know what your program is, when you're marketing cattle, and and how the you know the common goals can be reached, and then hopefully that order gets placed at your particular uh, sale venue that you capitalize on on not just one but more than one bidder. Uh, looking to own your cattle. Mm-hmm. And I think for those that are, are selling cattle, like myself, who, you know, selling calves in the fall, we have to take some responsibility, like you said, in in trying to market our livestock. And I, and I feel where a little bit of the frustration is from the producer side, and, and it kind of gets back to my question a little bit ago, is how do we see those profits back? Do we got to follow those cattle all the way to the to the packer to actually see some revenue from the breeding that we're putting in our cattle? Because I guess the frustration, as I said it just a little bit ago, is we do these things, but are we seeing that back to the producer side? And I'm kind of asking you a sort of a tough question here. I realize, and I think that what you're trying to tell us is the premium is there in the market. But to me, that is where I think producers get really frustrated is because they don't have the ability or the capital to follow these cattle all the way through. And so they feel like they're giving their profit away. I I can identify with that frustration 100%. My family and myself, we have, uh, experienced that as well through our small cow calf enterprise justin and i have had so many encounters over the years where this conversation comes up and the only the only correct answer is is to say that uh, to truly participate in the upside potential of your cattle you do need to own them through the feeding sector and sell the cattle on the rail on a carcass value basis now don't mistake me for for saying that that is the the, the thing that everyone should do, nor is it always the most profitable, uh, and nor is it always uh, risk-free. Those things are, are highly variable. But the question was, is that the way to participate in the built-in uh, added qualities of, of the cattle in the cat crop? And that is 100% the, the surefire way to do it. But I think we ought to take a step back 
um, from from just single single handedly promoting retained ownership and saying how can I how can I better market the cattle if if I don't if I'm not of that kind of a risk tolerance then what can we do to possibly you know get a little piece of that pie even though you know the next sectors of the business are not going to share all of it with you hopefully you can get a bid that's uh you know maybe five maybe ten dollars a hundred above the market I think we'd all say that that's a that's a decent decent premium so you're going to have to be creative as a rancher you're going to have to be a marketer and a self-promoter to an extent about your particular product and maybe that takes enrolling in some of these additional management programs with some attributes uh, that further qualify the cattle for different customers down down the chain um, but most importantly having uh, bred in the traits of you know those terminal traits of importance alongside whatever the ranch needs from a maternal perspective you know I think that's the first step out of the gate and from there kind of get your marketing shoes on and unfortunately it's going to take some work and maybe some highway miles to make those relationships to create the understanding and the and the demand down through the chain mm-hmm. we're going to continue our conversation with Paul Dykstra and coming up after the break it's going to be about what does the future look like for the certified Angus beef program we'll be back with more on the working ranch radio show Do you know your break-even for every group of cattle on feed? Performance beef users have quick access to real-time, accurate data. The technology simplifies feeding to financial data, making it easy to generate real-time closeouts, update rations, or analyze performance trends all in one place. Your feed, financial, and health information are integrated in one easy-to-use platform accessible from your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Find Performance Beef online to learn more and request a demo. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills, and my guest for this episode is Paul Dykstra with Certified Angus Beef. And Paul, final question for you today, and that is the future of the Certified Angus Beef Program, because much of the criteria was was established many years ago, and over the years, the program has held true to those standards. And as we move forward and we look ahead, what does the future look like for the Certified Angus Beef Program? Well, the bar has been elevated in the in the beef sector. These fed cattle are grading at a record pace in terms of choice and prime, and we're seeing uh, records as far as the percentage of those eligible cattle that are making our standards. That's about forty percent in the last ten weeks, forty percent average, and that's far and away an all-time record for us. So we do have to look to the future to see you know, what continues to differentiate our brand amongst the competition. And we've been looking a lot and doing a lot of work in that prime category. We have the uh, certified Angus beef brand prime uh, brand extension. So the specs are all the same, except for that marbling where the, where the prime grade must be achieved instead of just upper mm-hmm. two thirds choice. And since we now have a volume of product with 12% of all fed cattle making uh, USDA prime, you know, we've, we've also seen a lot more prime uh, in, in our, uh, under our label. So we can go now to larger retailers and say, listen, I know before you were unable to commit to prime because it was such a small, unavailable uh, category. But today, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. So we're looking to build more demand into that prime category because we feel like it's, it's going to be around. And then furthermore, 
Justin, we also think that um, uh, responsible agriculture is, is a theme that will not go away in the eyes of our consumer. Yeah. And that being the case, uh, we're looking to further the messages of, uh, of sustainability and beef quality assurance. And we know that, um, that ranchers through the feeding sector, everybody involved, you know, you know, by and large do an exceptional job with these things. Uh, we're so proud of, uh, of uh, the cattlemen and cattlewomen across the country for what they do and how they do it and do it right. But we've got to get the message across and we've got to help the customer know that they need to not believe uh, the sensational headlines, but believe the reality of the everyday uh, working cattlemen. So that's part of our um, approach moving forward, I think. All right, Paul. Well, I sure appreciate you joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. It's been my pleasure, Justin. Thanks again for having me. Paul Dykstra with Certified Angus Beef. And if you do have questions for Paul, please do not hesitate at all to give him a call. Their website, which has contact information to get a hold of him or anyone at Certified Angus Beef, is cabcattle.com. Again, that website is cabcattle.com. Or if you're interested in their website from the consumer perspective, it, of course, would be CertifiedAngusBeef.com. Just a final thought here regarding our topic today of certified Angus beef. And I realize there are more breeds across the country than just Angus cattle. And and the intent of this program was not really to promote the program other than bring to light some of the questions that I had about it, maybe dispel some rumors, but also to understand the program from the basics of why it was established and what it entails for today's industry. But at the end of the day, you know, it doesn't matter what breed you raise or the reasons for why you run that breed. More than likely, those reasons are very justified. Nevertheless, it's good to be educated about a topic like this that may help you in your quest to be a better decision maker in your operation and in the long run, be profitable. Up next, meteorologist Don Day joins us. I'm curious about this harsh weather we've seen across the country this spring and its effects on insects emergence. I'm going to ask him about that when we return here on the Working Ranch Radio Show on Rural Radio, Channel 147, Sirius XM. The Beefmaster excels in all maternal traits. They get bred easily year in and year out. They make raising good calves look easy and possess excellent longevity, not breaking down in tough environments. Research shows the breed ranks above others for feed efficiency, one of the most important production traits. If your cow herd has lost its ability to adapt, maybe it's time to rebuild with proven Beefmaster females. Nothing beats a Beefmaster. Learn more about what the Beefmaster cow can do at beefmasters.org. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show here on Real Radio Channel 147, Sirius XM. I'm your host, Justin Mills, as we are joined now by meteorologist Don Day. And Don, thanks for joining us here on our program today. Thanks for having me. Well, Don, before we get into looking at our long-term weather, and we're going to be talking about drought here in just a moment, 
I wanted to visit with you about how weather affects insect emergence because I know in the next 10 to 14 days as the weather starts to improve or, or, or get warmer and the soil temperatures start to warm up as well, we're going to start to see more insects showing up across the country. Now, I realize the southern tier of the country versus the northern tier of the country, there's some timing that's considerably different. Nevertheless, we have seen some pretty extreme weather in the last weeks to months across the country. So how does our weather affect insect emergence? Yeah, I I definitely think the weather that we've had going into the end of the winter season, as we got into the latter half of winter is when we saw a lot of our coldest weather. And that was certainly something that we experienced in April, where a large swath of the central United States up into central and western Canada and parts of the Intermountain West were had a really cool April. And so the emergence of some insects in that part of the country may be a little bit behind a little bit. But now that we see warmer temperatures developing as we get deeper into that latter half of the spring season, emergence for some of the insects, for some of you out there, may be a week or two later. Uh, but they're likely still coming. Areas that were warmer, like the southwest United States and parts of the east and southeast, well, they're already into the throes of their insect season. So let's take a look at our weather outlook for the next couple of weeks. And I know much of the country is still in a very dry to drought type situation, but it does appear as we're going to start to see some areas picking up some moisture. What does that likely look like and where are those areas at? Well, it's really interesting, Justin, when we take a look at what has happened over the last few weeks and what we see coming is there are islands of wetness beginning to show up, but there are islands of wetness in a sea of dryness. And so while there will be areas that are going to continue to see improvement, and I think parts of Colorado, parts of Nebraska and parts of Wyoming, not all of those states, all of the the counties of those states, but sections of those states are likely going to see the biggest improvement. Uh, we have a pattern that is setting up where those areas are going to be most favored. The areas that we are really concerned about are more on the edges. Uh, that would be the Dakotas, eastern areas of Montana. And then as you go back into the southern plains, the desert southwest into California, they've had very little spring moisture, and the tail end of spring is not looking good for those areas early as well. And we're also having some dryness now beginning to show up in parts of the Great Lakes. And uh, that is something that is also spreading in parts of the Corn Belt as well. Mm-hmm. Don, a while back in one of our weather segments, you and I talked about the weather folklore of 90-day fog forecasting. And if you're listening and you're not sure exactly what I'm talking about, that is basically 90 days from a heavy fog in your area, there is to be a significant weather event. And, and Don, I always joke about this because those of us in the ag industry that rely so much on, on water and moisture... Boy, anything that's going to give us some optimism about future moisture, we really we really cling to. And so I really do keep very accurate records of, of fog forecasting here for my area. And a few days ago, I texted you because we had about two to three days of real heavy fog across the Black Hills of northeast Wyoming and South Dakota. And what that would say is that about 90 days, which would be the end of July, first part of August, that we could have a significant weather event. 
Is that something that you're seeing as it correlates to the weakening of the La Nina pattern and the weather we'll see towards the middle of the summer? Well, depending on what part of the country you live in, that can be an active time of year. Um, in the southern and southeastern areas of the United States, you know, you're, you're still into that thunderstorm season, but not quite into the tropical season yet. But we tend to see a lot of activity that time of year in the Midwest and the Corn Belt with a lot of thunderstorm activity, partly due to what we call that American, North American monsoon, that natural flow of moisture that comes up into the desert states and into the southern plains and then gradually works its way northward across the rest of the United States, especially the Corn Belt and the central plains of the United States. So having that fog when you observed it and then 90 days later towards that latter part of July, you know, very well might be an indication that those areas I just mentioned will see an increase in the shower and thunderstorm activity and maybe a wet period. And mm. even though we're seeing La Nina weakening, we still have these islands of dryness and these areas of dryness that are going to need a lot of help this summer. You bet. Well, Don, thanks for joining us here on our program today. Thank you. Don Day with dayweather.com and you can find his daily video podcast right there on his website. Subscribe to that as it kicks out every morning, Monday through Friday. Again, his website is dayweather.com. A thank you to my other guests as well for joining me today. Paul Dykstra with Certified Angus Beef LLC and of course the Captain Tim O'Burn with his two cents. Thank you to our sponsors as well. The American Simmental Association, Sim Genetics, Profit Through Science, Find out more at Simmental.org. The American Hereford Association, come home to Hereford. Performance Beef, easy to use cattle management software. The North American Limousine Foundation, limousine cattle deliver to your bottom line. Beefmaster, nothing beats a Beefmaster. And finally, the Working Ranch Expo, December 8th, 9th, and 10th. Join us all here in Las Vegas during the National Finals Rodeo for this three-day trade show event. If you'd like to exhibit or find more information, you can go to workingranchexpo.com. Well, if you have questions, ideas for topics on the show, would like to get a hold of me here at the Working Ranch studio, you can sure give me a call or text at 307-363-COWS. Again, that's 307-363-COWS. Or shoot me an email at justin.workingranch at gmail.com. The Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine. Join us each Saturday at 12 noon Eastern right here on Rural Radio, Channel 147, Sirius XM, or on your podcast provider. Thanks again for joining me. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long.